Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. So again, the first thing you need to do is have the wisdom to know you're supposed to miss. Again, the story that you're telling yourself, that I'm telling myself, that you should hit every target you set for yourself is arguably the greatest source of your suffering. If you allow yourself to miss the target in every context of your life, then you have the freedom to be non-emotional about it, quit shaming yourself and use it as data to get better. It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable, everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health, and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And let me just say, I am coming off of a high, which is the conversation that I just had with Brian Johnson, of which you are about to hear. This is a conversation for absolutely everyone in terms of how we can live our life to its fullest potential, how to live our virtues and live in excellence. So a little bit about Brian. He is a founder and CEO. He's raised 20 million, over $20 million and built two market leading social platforms. He is a modern day philosopher and he has served tens of thousands of people from nearly every country in the world with his heroic membership and has trained over 3,500 people from 90 plus countries with his heroic coach program. YouTube channel, 225K plus subscribers, 20 million views, podcast has another 14 million downloads. He was featured in the documentary Finding Joe on Joseph Campbell and the Modern Hero's Journey alongside Deepak Chopra, Laird Hamilton, Tony Hawk, and the late Sir Ken Robinson. So what did we talk about? Well, Brian has a new book coming out. It is called Arate, Activate Your Heroic Potential. And we talked about all of the virtues that it takes and it requires to live an actualized life. So we talk about knowing what the ultimate game is, right? So what's our vice? What's our virtue? This is the battle within us. We talk about gratefulness. We talk about hope. We talk about zest, which is sort of that our physiology that drives our psychology. We talk about love. We talk about our top strengths. We talk about forging something called anti-fragility, which is to say the obstacles that make us stronger. We talk about some of the hallmarks of confidence. We talk about emotional stamina and grit and self-compassion and perfectionism and optimism, energy, work, love. This is a conversation for every single one of you who is looking to live their best life and to have a life well lived so that at the end of the day or at the end of your life, whatever, you know, time frame you're looking at it through, you can say, I did good. I did the best that I had 
with what I had with the time that I had. So this is a fantastic conversation. I'm so excited for you to hear it. And I would strongly recommend you pick up this book. It's available where any good books are sold. It's Arete, A-R-E-T-E. Before we get to it, I do want to just call out one of my fans for leaving this review. It's so beautiful and wanted to make sure that we highlight it. This is from Tamara in Canada from Iconic Physique. And the review is captivating, gracious, and thought-provoking. I've been a fan for a year or two, and I love that the science is presented in a relatable and creative manner. The topic and the guests speak to me from both a business and personal reasons, and I'm also a word nerd, so I appreciate that they are delivered artfully and poetically juxtaposed with the realism of science and fact. The tone is becoming more authentic, vulnerable, heartfelt, which is both inspiring and magnetic keep shining, taking up space, trailblazing, and inspiring others to claim their light also. Tamara, thank you so much for taking the time to write this. Uh, Very meaningful for me to read your words and how you are receiving the podcast. And for you, my dear listener, my dear Betty, if you are finding this podcast useful in any way, in any realm or any vertical in your life, I would invite you to also either give us, a, if, if you feel like we're deserving of a five-star review on iTunes or even a review, uh, a written review, that would be super awesome sauce or on Spotify, if that's where you're listening, uh, certainly you can re- uh, rate us there as well. So thank you, Tamara, for that. And I look forward to reading your review on one of these intros as well. So please enjoy this enlightening conversation with Brian Johnson. Brian Johnson, my friend, welcome to the Better Podcast. I am just delighted that we are going to have this conversation that we're about to have. Stephanie, I am so thrilled to be here with you today and uh, excited about our chat as well. Yes. And we are going to be talking about uh, your new book, Arate. You are watching this on YouTube. I'll just hold it up to the camera. Uh, You can see the thickness of this book. This is a thousand pages deep. It's Arate activating your heroic potential. Volume one, that did not go uh, I did not. I noticed that detail that we are at volume one, uh, potentially uh, opening the uh, possibility for more volumes in the future. So tell us, uh, you know, as someone who speaks French, I first read that and I thought it meant stop, <laughs> but that's not what it means. So why don't you define for us the title of the book? What does Arate mean? Yeah, so the title of the book is also tattooed on my right forearm. So I'm all in on the idea of Arate. In this context, it's an ancient Greek word that we translate as excellence or virtue. And it's essentially the one word answer that Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, the ancient Stoics would give on how to live. If you want to create a life of meaning, they would say live with arete. Um, And again, we directly translate that as excellence or virtue, but it has a deeper meaning, something closer to expressing the best version of yourself moment to moment to moment. So the way I like to describe it is imagine if, and if you're watching this, you can see me raise my hand. If you're not, I'm raising my hand up to an eye level. And if this is who you are capable of being, and you're actually being this, and there's a gap between who you could be and who you're actually being, it's in that gap in which regret, anxiety, disillusionment exists. If you can close the gap in the moment in which you close that gap and live with Arte, there's no room for all of that stuff. And you feel a deep sense of what the ancient Greeks and Stoics would call eudaimonia, good soul. You're flourishing. You're being your best self which again is what Aristotle in the ancient said is the summum bonum of a good life. 
is to express the best version of yourself. We call that the most heroic version of yourself. And it's in the moment in which you live with Arte that you are heroic, that you are experiencing that deep sense of joy and meaning. We just need to string more and more of those moments together, which is what the book is all about. So 451 of my favorite ideas that I've picked up over the last better part of 25 years. Volume one is, yeah, yeah, I'm going to come back at it. Let's see what I can do over the next three, four, five years, another volume um, for as long as I'm alive. But that's the basic idea is Arte expressing the best version of yourself moment to moment to moment. And the quote at the top, uh, Phil Stutz, he says, this book will change your life. And if enough of us commit, it will change the world. And one of the questions that you ask early on in the book is that if it's so obvious that the ultimate purpose of life is to express the best version of ourselves, why is this not the ultimate aim of everyone? So can you expand a little bit on- question, right? I mean- yeah. We talk about it in the book, you know, but it, this is a 2,500-year-old challenge. So this is the question that all ancient wisdom traditions and all faith traditions um, have, have sought to answer, and they've answered in the same exact way. 2,500 years, every single culture has answered the question the same way. They have cultural nuances to it. But the short story is live with virtue. Be your best self in service to something bigger than yourself. And then my joke is, all right, if it's so obvious, why is it so hard for us to understand? And the reality is we live in a society. And again, this is a 2,500-year-old challenge. This is not new. It's exacerbated with modern social technology and all the other things. Um, but it's always been vice versus virtue. It's always been the seduction of get it quick, get it easy, and go after the fame, the wealth, the hotness. But science says unequivocally, that if you're chasing those extrinsic um, measures of success, even if you are successful in your pursuit of them, you will be less, and it moves me every time I say this, less, quote, psychologically stable than people who are going for the intrinsic stuff, becoming a better human being, deepening your personal relationships, and making a meaningful contribution independent of the fame, wealth, and hotness. And it's not either or. But you want to know what the ultimate game is. And this is Stephen Covey's, it's David Brooks's second mountain. A lot of people get to the first mountain, the peak of it, and they look around and they're like, what? This is it? I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. Stephen Covey, you know, 20, 30 years ago said it's like climbing a ladder, getting to the top rung and realizing you put it up against the wrong wall. And another metaphor I like is a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. But if that first step is in the wrong direction, the faster you move, the further away you get from the real destination. So we just need to slow down, step back just an inch and look at it and say, look, in a society that's as unhealthy as ours is, anxiety, depression, chronic disease, et cetera, um, we want to notice what everybody's doing and kind of pause and see, are we playing the right game? But that's the basic idea. And um, it's harder than ever to get that. But the moment that we do things change, which is why it's objective one in the book. You've got to know the ultimate game, how to play it well, and then restructure your life to win that game. And in the process, you tend to win all the other smaller games at a higher level. But it's an important distinction um, that's been fun to, to try to get a, a compelling narrative to uh, to sell the idea of virtue for the win. Yeah. And I, I love that. And I, I, I appreciate you saying that it's the 25 hundred year old problem. It's not just something that, you know, we're, we're dealing with today in 2023 or, you know, that how can we, um, sort of move towards our ultimate, uh, self-actualization, uh, might be another word to, um, to describe what we're talking about with Arate here. 
And so with that, um, maybe let's talk a little bit. And I want to, as our conversation progresses, I'd like to be able to give the listener some actionable items, because I think when we talk about extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation, this is something that I've talked about um, in terms of an unraveling, let's say, of our or an unhitching even of our desire for external validation versus finding that validation within. What are some of the, in your experience, in, you know, whether it's with your coaching with your coaching and your business or your own personal end of one uh, experience, how do we begin? What's the first step or first couple of steps, let's say, to begin to unravel that need for the, I like what you said, it was uh, fame. Uh, was it wealth? I, what was it? Wealth and hotness. Wealth and ho- yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Fame, wealth and hotness. <laughs> how do we get away from these sort of externally, well, they really are imprinted upon us, right? Through society. Like these are the things that matter. This is the definition of success. How do we start to rewrite our own definition of success? What does that look like? Yeah, this is so important and such a great um, frame. Let's go to Maslow because this is exactly what Maslow said. So Abraham Maslow came up with the hierarchy of needs. Um, of course, I talk about him a little bit in the book, but one of my one of my heroes, I mean, he's on my wall back there. And, you know, he says that at a certain stage of our development, and we're all at that stage, this deep into this conversation. You've taken care of a lot of the basic fundamental needs. He says at that point, your need to actualize yourself, to be your best self, becomes as real as your need to breathe. I call that soul oxygen. And to the extent you aren't living in integrity with yourself, you're going to suffer, full stop. But then your suffering is actually a great thing because it's showing you that you've got some work to do. We just need to step back and say, all right, well, why might that be? And then it's what we just talked about um, in terms of knowing the ultimate game. But he gives us a very practical way to think about it. He says in any given moment, you have a choice. You can step forward into growth or back into safety. Forward into growth or back into safety. You can trust yourself and have the wisdom and discipline and love and courage to be your best self, which would be our closing the gap, our thing or not. And it's on those days in which we don't trust ourselves and we do the things we know aren't best for us, that we want to numb ourselves at the end of the day. And then the binge drinking, the binge watching, the binge eating, all the things that that kind of take us out of that pain are present. But again, slowing down long enough to know the ultimate game, to realize it's supposed to be hard, which is another part of what we might discuss today. Um, And then to simplify it all, energy, work, and love, to figure out what you do when you're at your best. And the most practical thing that I do with people is get out a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle of it, on the left put do, and on the right put don't, and then think about you at your best. Because we've all experienced moments and days and and weeks and months and years even when we've been great, we've been at our best. Well, what did you do? And what did you not do? All we've got to do is get clarity on that and then do more of the things you do when you're at your best and less of the things you don't. That sounds overly simplistic. It is simple. It's not easy, but that's it. Get clarity on it. Start doing those things more consistently. um, And then we can talk about why that's important and how we forge anti-fragile confidence in the process. Um, But that's kind of Maslow's idea that echoes everything we're talking about and some some quick takes on how how to live in integrity with that in the moment. That's great. I love that. And I like the idea or I like the um, the admission that it's supposed to be hard. I think that that takes off a lot of the pressure for when we do have difficult days, weeks, months, years, that 
we look at it as a, that it's not just something we've been cursed by the gods or there's something inherently wrong or intrinsically wrong with us, but there are moments in life uh, that I believe it was, I can't remember where in your book, but it was P-U-H. It was like part of it's like pain, hard work, (laughs) you know, like it's, it's supposed to be like, there's supposed to be difficult moments and those, you know, it's like iron forges iron. So the more difficult moments potentially that you are exposed to, uh, the stronger that you're going to become. And I've said this before on the show, it's like a lot of, you know, a lot of, I have a lot of women that listen uh, to the show for helping with, let's say their hormones or helping with weight loss or helping, you know, be their best self, which we're going to talk a little bit about today in the masterpiece, you know, your masterpiece um, days. And I think that when we are not able to um, sort of see the timeline over, like we're not able to see sort of the big picture and say, okay, like it's difficult now. I want to be strong, but you're not, you're not necessarily willing to subject yourself to the things that actually create strength, which is getting uncomfortable, not dying, right? Like to take a page from Michael uh, Easter, it's like get uncomfortable and don't die, right? But you have to get uncomfortable in order to grow, in order to be strong, right? Yeah. But I think your point's a really important one, that it's supposed to be hard. And just to go to that briefly, I think we're seduced to believe two things that aren't helping us. Number one, we're seduced to believe that the real game we should play is the fame and the wealth and the hotness, you know, the Instagram followers, the square footage in the house and all the other extrinsic stuff. So we're told that that's what we should go after. Then we're told that it should be easy. So neither one of those is helpful. First of all, that isn't actually what you want to go after. And again, there's nothing wrong with those things. They just can't be the predominant focus. It's not 100% zero, but it can't be 100% zero the other way. But I I struggled a lot. Uh, When I was a young, when I was a kid, I was scared of everything. As a young man, I wanted to end my own life. I mean, I, I know the depths of despair. And the story that I told myself was something was wrong with me. Everybody else had it figured out. Yeah, And the science of self-compassion, I have goosebumps right now, is so powerful. Rule number one is you're not alone. Common humanity, we all struggle. 80% of us are struggling with anxiety and depression right now. You know, the invisible disability that we face with our mental health challenges is, is um, horrific and tragic and, and more pervasive than ever before. So we're not alone. And then we start stepping back and, and embracing that common humanity and start having conversations like this about, all right, cool. What is the ultimate game? How can I play it well? And, and the word hero, very importantly, um, it feels like a masculine word, you know. But in ancient Greece, the word hero, and I have that tattooed, and you know how much I love hero and your <laughs> film and just all the work you all are doing together on this. Um, the word hero in ancient Greece didn't mean tough guy or killer of bad guy. The word meant he- meant protector. So the most heroic person in my family is my wife. You know what she's done for our two kids, 11 and six, but no one knows. You know, she, we homeschool our kids. She had two home births and she works so hard and she does everything she can to protect and to serve our kids. She's not getting any of the extrinsic fame. Well, all these, that's not what she's seeing. You know, in our society, she's got it backwards. And so the role that women play as protectors of our values, our virtues, our families, our communities, and of course, men as well. But but redefining what it means to be a hero, to protect that which we love, is is really important to me. Um, and to embrace how hard it is. But then again, you know that your beautiful movie hero. Um, what made the movie great, and what makes every hero's journey great, is the challenges. You'd walk right. out of a movie if it was easy for the hero. 
But yet we think our lives should be easy. And we think something's wrong with us when we face heroic challenges. So again, it's really important we get that intellectually and practically. And I get it abstractly. Like when I face challenges, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get it abstractly, but I shouldn't be the one facing <laughs> yes, challenges right, in my right. relationship, with my business, with my right. health. But we've got to really um, embrace that, I think, culturally, you know, and then do the hard work to build that strength for two. Remembering the hero's secret weapon is love. It's the people we're serving, the people we're committed to being, you know, having the strength for that. Um, gives us the courage to go out and um, do what we're here to do, even when we don't, and especially when we don't feel like it. One of the things we've talked about for years is that gratitude is one of the quickest ways out of anxiety. And sort of neurophysiologically, we know that that's also very true because it's the same, er like it's the same area of the brain. You can't, it's like you can't be in drive and reverse at the same time. You can't be jumping and squatting at the same time, although both of those are necessary in order to jump. And in your book, you talk about this idea of taking things for granted. And so this is under the mm -hmm. umbrella of gratitude. So taking things for granted versus taking things as granted. And it's just a little word that's the difference mm -hmm. there, for and as. And I wanted you to maybe expand on that in terms of how we might, when there are days where we don't really feel like wearing the cape, where we don't really feel particularly protector, or we don't really feel, uh, you know, our that we don't have the capacity for that arete. How do yep. we, uh, I, I don't like the word hack because it, it seems like yep. a, a shortcut or it seems like a not done f with intention and properly, but maybe a strategy. First, define the difference between taking things for granted versus taking things as granted. And then how, yep. might, we, how might we use gratitude as a way out of some of these men, you know, you talked about, um, you know, 80% of us are, you know, at some point, experience some type of mental health challenge, how we might use this as a tool or a tactic to move us out of that state um, and into and into a higher one. Yeah, I love that you pulled that idea out. It's one of my all-time favorite um, ideas in general and in the book. So to step back and then to give it a little bit of context, the ultimate game is to know who you are at your best and more specifically, what virtues you embody. So the science is unequivocal. Uh, the ancient philosophers all talked about the cardinal virtues of wisdom, discipline, love, and courage. Scientists agree with that. They founded the positive psychology movement studying ancient wisdom traditions and the fact that they all had coherence on the cardinal virtues. Then they also established the fact that the virtues most highly correlated with our well-being include gratitude, hope, curiosity, and what they call zest, a sense of energy and vitality. So that's the context. So then I think the word that, that I like to use vis-a-vis -vis hack is practice. So if you ask my kids, 11 and 6, how, you, how do you get good at anything? They will say instantly, you practice. So if you want to get good at living in integrity with your highest self and embodying these virtues, what do you need to do? You need to practice them all the time, all day, every day. So then the question becomes, how do you practice gratitude? And then again, one step before that is the distinction that Robert Emmons, who's the world's leading thinker on the science of gratitude, who wrote a couple of great books on the subject, um, he says that simply keeping track of five things for which you're grateful once a week for like six weeks will boost your happiness by 25%. There are very few things you can do that will do that. Um, and then I love the way there's you no, there's it. no medication. There's no medication that has that safety pro profile either. <laughs> you know, Again, <laughs> as you and I say, goosebumps on goosebumps. Like, yeah. yes, that's yeah. huge. You can yeah. do it. You can practice it. But then why wait once a week? 
My coach, Phil Stott, says grateful flow in any given moment. Think about the things that are amazing. Right now, we're connecting on. It's miraculous to me. How is it possible? I'm in Austin. You're in Toronto. Somehow, we're communicating in real. I, that literally blows my mind every time I think about it. Now, I could take that for granted, right? And I can take the fact that I hop in a car or I flew home after we hung out in Toronto. And I'm like, I'm in the air, 20,000 feet up, sitting in a chair. Like, how is that? I mean, that's just a miracle. Now, I could take that for granted and complain that the internet went down, which it did while I was in flight. Or I can look at it all and say, wait, wait, wait. That's a miracle. Let me take that as granted by some power bigger than me, whatever your belief system is. But that switch between for granted and as granted, Robert Emmons says, is huge. And I loved your distinction to go back to it on you can't be in drive and reverse at the same time. You cannot simultaneously in the moment. And again, it's more nuanced than this. But in the moment, you can't be both grateful and depressed. It's not possible. Or grateful and anxious. In in that moment, you can't be in both states at the same time. And that's a powerful thing to know, because when you feel overwhelmed, which you will, quit shaming yourself and telling yourself something's wrong or it should be easier or you should have already won and say, all right, I'm feeling this right now. Let me be grateful. Let me remind myself I'm winning. I've got a healthy kid or two or three. I've got this opportunity to be here today with whoever I'm hanging out with. Let me appreciate that. Take it as granted rather than for granted. And the opposite of gratitude is entitlement. So people who have entitlement, who think that they should get whatever they want and they think they need in every given moment, aren't happy people. So having the humility to realize that, again, the fact that we're alive is a gift. And we can get into deep chats about memento mori and all the perspective building tools of that Mm -hmm. without discounting the challenges we face. But gratitude, again, is another really powerful practice in the moment. Um, to appreciate it. Again, easier said than done. And it's more nuanced, of course, as all things are. But that ability to appreciate the little things isn't a little thing. Like that's a really core practice um, to help us flourish and um, move through the inevitable challenges and ups and downs of life. That's great. That's so great. And I and I think that, you know, to your point, it's so hard to be anxious when you're in gratitude. And yes, it's very easy to discount that you are living in you know, a modern, like if you described your life to a Roman <laughs> or Seneca or, you know, whoever, they would, they just would think you were crazy. They would crazy. think, yeah, they would think crazy. that you're nuts, that you can fly yeah. through the air, on, sit 20,000 feet up it, in a chair like, and connect with someone online and, you know, just look at this like square thing. And then you can speak to someone anywhere in the world or order your food yeah. or whatever. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. And even just like a mundane practice I do with my kids, if we're in traffic, Literally, and, and especially when you need to be somewhere at a certain time and you may not be because you're in traffic. I literally, every time I'm like, yeah, well, you know, could have been on a horse. You know how it was a hundred years ago. Yeah, We're riding horses everywhere. Like you tell me, all right, it's a little hot. You know, the AC isn't kicking on as fast as you want in the car. You're in a car, you know, like, okay, you know, you're moving at 10 miles an hour. You want to move at 55. But that idea of using little mundane micro moments, especially those of us who have kids and are committed to raising the next next generation of heroes. Um, You know, we've made it a fun game to to try to practice this stuff and to make it the natural default for our kids. Um, And there's always an opportunity to practice. That's, again, the, the theory to practice here. We all know the things we could be doing. The question is, are we consistently practicing our philosophy or not? 
And the more consistently we can get ourselves to do that, the more consistently we're going to experience the emotions we want to um, experience more of uh, and be the influence we want to be on our kids and, and colleagues, families, et cetera. I want to talk a little bit about hope. Um, this is particularly pertinent right now. You know, there's wars, wa- ra- you know, waging in the Middle East. And there's, you know, there's all these images that we have access to that maybe we uh, haven't had access to in the past. And I, I hear a lot of, um, at least from the community, there's people that are losing a lot of hope. And in the book, you talked about, uh, I wanted, I, I mentioned to you in the pre-chat, I couldn't actually believe when I read this in your book, you were talking about this. Um, and I don't remember the researcher, so you, you, you may know, but it was, they were looking at rats and they had these rats and they were swimming in the water and they would swim for about 15 minutes before they would sort of give up and then drown. Um, and then I, I would like you to actually, I would actually like you to describe the rest of the experiment, um, in terms of what happened to them and then how we can use that as a learning, how we can use that as an anchoring piece and understand the, the power that hope has and how we might think about cultivating hope in our everyday life when we are seeing, you know, terrible images from where, I mean, there's, you know, Gio and I sort of have this saying, it's like, there's always something. So there's the Middle East, you know, on and off for, you know, decades and decades. And then there's like, you know, then there was a pandemic and then there was a, you know, then there was a racial movement. And then there there was all these different there's always something that is seeking to, maybe it's entropy, maybe it's just like the natural order of the universe where it's like seeking to create disarray and disorganization. But how do we hold on to hope? So let's talk about this, yep. talk about the rat study, and then how can we cultivate hope in our in our everyday lives? Yeah, again, so powerful. So scientists say that gratitude and hope are two of the top virtues that we need to master if we want to flourish. They're actually tied for second. The number one virtue is zest, which I know is a huge part of your work, getting your energy dialed in. It, again, very surprisingly, that goofy word for, for energy and vitality, but zest, gratitude, and hope are the top three virtues that we want to get really good at embodying. And again, it's not just the outside stuff. It's, yeah, yeah, and I got these challenges with my spouse and with my kids and with my job. It's like, it's it's everywhere, you know? And then the science is also unequivocal. They've done research on things like the Boston bombing at the marathon. People who watched six hours of that had more post-traumatic stress than people who experienced it. So you need to limit the amount of exposure you have. I'm not saying put your head in the sand, ostrich style, but these images are real. And our our limbic system can't separate what's real and what's out there. We feel like we're experiencing it. We evolved to deal with one lion roaring at us in the jungle, you know, once every 10 days or 30 days, not a lot, the whole jungle roaring at us all day, every day. So just you know, mitigating how much we're exposed to that is an important thing to consider. But hope, I love hope. Um, it's one of my top five virtues, as I discussed in the book, and I'm so happy you already did the test on it and all that stuff that we made chat about. But hope has three elements to it. The science of hope. This isn't, oh, I hope. This is no, it's science of hope. There are three aspects. Number one, you have to believe that your future will be better than your present. And you need to have an inspiring goal to which you are aiming your life force and excited about, whether that's in your energy, your work, or your love. What gets you up out of, out of bed in the morning that you're excited about? You need to have that um, vision of a better future. The second thing is you got to have agency, which is the scientific word for like a sense that you can do something, self-efficacy, that you can actually make that better future come to life. And I'm going to come back to the rats in a moment. And then the third thing is you got to have a plan. 
You got to know how you're going to use your agency to create that better future. And you got to be willing to have plan B, C, D, E, F, G. So we can talk more about that. But the, but the rat study is crazy. So I believe the researcher's name was Richter. And what he did was, and again, all the asterisks on animal you know, studies and compassion and those things. But back in the day, they brought, you know, came into a lab and they have rats that they're putting into water and they timed how long they can swim before they drown. The rats basically drowned on average in 15 minutes. Then what they did was they pulled them out right before that point in time. They dried them off. They let their, you know, cardiovascular system recover. Then they put them back in. And they were curious, well, how much longer can they swim? You'd think they'd swim. I mean, frankly, I'd think they'd swim for another like 10 minutes because they got exhausted after 15. It's their yeah. second time in. Not going to do as well. Yeah. But they didn't swim for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 30 minutes. After they swam for 60 hours or something insane like it that. It was 60 I mean, hours. It was, I wrote it down because I didn't believe it. I was like, that's not 60 hours. Yeah. <laughs> 60 hours. And, and David Goggins, by the way, talks about this exact study in his new book, Never Finish. So why is that? And, and he says that it's a belief, it's hope. They had seen a better future. They had felt this sense of, oh, okay, wait, I can live. I can survive this. So I'm going to keep on swimming and keep on swimming and keep on swimming and keep on swimming. And the moment's going to come when somebody's going to pull me out and I'm going to get dried off and I'm going to be back to the normal reality. Think about that. 15 minutes versus 60 hours. If you believe, and, and Goggin says belief is primordial. There's something about it when you believe that you will endure, you will get through whatever challenges you're facing, which again is, is the objective too in our, in our book. And the thing I'm most proud of to help people forge that level of belief in themselves. But that study is insane. Like I, I literally, every time I think about it, I'm like, what? But it's true. And so what we need to do, again, Goggins comes into mind. He says, cookie jars. You got to know who you are at your best. And when you're feeling your worst, you got to go back to the moments where you kept on swimming. I call those hero bars. Those times where somehow you endured. You know, I've got a bunch of them. And you, you fought through the challenges. And, and you're really proud of what you created on the other side of it. You know, the things I'm most proud of came on the other side of almost giving up and being hammered and wanting to give up. And, and you know, uh, but we want to remember ourselves at our best, which is a good way to fuel hope for the future. A sense that you can achieve whatever you set out to and then work the next plan as you remember that you've been through those hard times before you got through, you made yourself proud, et cetera. But yeah, that study is crazy. Gratitude and hope. You put those two things together while dominating the fundamentals, eating, moving, sleeping, you know, breathing and focusing your mind. And you're frankly 60, 70, 80% there. That's how powerful those three virtues are. You know, as you say that, I was sort of reflecting on some of the most difficult challenges I've ever had in my life. And in the moment, of course, I it wasn't like, yeah, this is going to, we're all going to, you know, sit around and laugh at this one day. It was very difficult in the moment. It was very challenging. I really was in some cases really pushed up against the wall and I had to make a decision in terms of what I was going to do. But always reflecting back on it, I've always been so proud of the way that I handled it. I've always been, there's been so many lessons um, yeah. that I've learned from it. And we'll talk about winning and, and learning in, in just a minute. But I, I, I want, I would love for you to talk about this idea of, the obstacles that you face can in fact make you stronger that it's you know and it's it's yep. back to what you were saying before like life is supposed to be hard and it, in yep. in and in, in, in fact if we start to lean into that idea and say bring on the hard like bring it to yep. me 
right? Oh, what yeah. kind what kind of individual what can come about from 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 that? So let's talk about forging anti-fragility. That's actually Absolutely accurate. Obstacles can make us stronger. And in fact, they're the only ways we can get stronger. So one of the metaphors I use now is going to the gym. If you go to the gym, what do you do when you go there? You lift weights, you know, you're training aerobically or whatever, but you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. You don't go to the gym and lift styrofoam weights. You want real weights because that's how you know you're going to get stronger. Now you need the proper amount of weights. You don't injure yourself, but you got to overload. Then your body overcompensates and makes you stronger. Um, and you have to be willing to do that, not just in the gym, but spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, et cetera. Now, anti-fragile confidence, um, are t- it's two of my favorite words. So Nassim Taleb coined the word anti-fragility. And it's, it's a really important word that I, I want to help bring into our cultural um, vocabulary. So we know about being resilient, which is better than being fragile. So if you're fragile and life hits, Challenge occurs, COVID happens, whatever. Uh, If you're fragile, to be direct, you break, you fall apart, and life just no longer works for you the way you want. If you're resilient, you can tolerate more stress, then eventually you break down, but you bounce back faster than most. That's better than being fragile, but it's not the best you're capable of. What would happen if instead of just being resilient, of course, not being fragile, you got stronger when life pushed you around? If that was the case, you'd be anti-fragile. And then if you were a package being shipped in the mail, you wouldn't write, handle me with care. I can't handle stress. You'd say, push me around. I get stronger with stress. I literally want you to throw me around. I'm a box. You're going to make me better. It's a really cool concept to think about. Now, that sounds nice and warm and fuzzy. How do you actually create that? Well, this is where confidence comes in. And and Phil Stott's an emotional stamina, which we talked about briefly before we came on. So we want to cultivate anti-fragile confidence. The word confidence etymologically means intense trust, confidere. Now, if you want to have intense trust in yourself, how do you build that? Well, you build trust in your relationship with yourself the same exact way you build trust in any relationship with anyone. If I want to build trust with you, I show up when we scheduled our time together. If I didn't, you wouldn't trust me. Maybe you'd give me a pass once, but if I did it twice, you'd be like, I don't trust this guy. Well, all right. If you want to build trust in your relationship with yourself, you need to start doing the things you say you will do more consistently. If you say you're going to put your electronics away at night to get a good night of sleep, you're going to meditate for a few minutes, you're going to move your body, you're going to follow a nutrition protocol. You don't need to do it perfectly because no one's perfect. Maslow tells us that as well. No perfect human beings, but we need to more consistently do the things we say we will do in order to build the trust and confidence that we can handle whatever life throws at us. Now, Phil Stutz comes back in. Uh, Again, Phil's in the Netflix documentary called Stutz with Jonah Hill. I've worked with him 400 one-on-one sessions over the last eight years. He's my spiritual father, brilliant human being. He says, if you want emotional stamina, which is his take on my anti-fragile confidence, well, then you need to know this. The worse you feel, the more committed you are to your protocol. It's a life-changing thing. The worse you feel, the more challenges you're facing, the more overwhelmed you feel, the more committed you are to your protocol. Now that presupposes you have a protocol, which is a sense of what you do and don't do when you're at your best. Now, what I used to do when life would overwhelm me was all the things I knew I shouldn't be doing. I'd stop doing the positive things and I'd start doing the things that invited the clowns and the circus into town and my life would spiral out. 
But what if in those moments when we get hit hard, rather than spiral out into, into vicious behavior, we double down on the virtuous stuff? If we do that, we literally get stronger when life pushes us because that becomes the trigger, the cue, the prompt to practice our philosophy with an even deeper level of ferocity to build that strength. And when we do that, even one, three, five percent more of the time, 10 percent more of the time, we completely change our lives because then the things that used to send us off the rails become the very things that make us better. Nassim Taleb, to conclude, he uses a metaphor to describe anti-fragility. He says the wind, aka the stress in your life, the wind will extinguish a candle, but that same exact wind will fuel a fire. So we need to build our fire. We need to have the wisdom, the discipline to actually do the things we know we need to do, especially when we don't feel like doing them. And then something shifts. And it's the thing I'm most proud of, frankly, in my work, working with, you know, 10,000 coaches from around the world now in our app with Heroic. This is what's changed the most lives to actually get this again, not perfectly, but even X percent more consistently shifting from off the rails to deepening our practice. Um, is exhilarating. And um, obviously, I get fired up about it. But that's anti-fragile confidence. Um, and that's objective too in the book. After we know the ultimate game, we know it's supposed to be hard. Then we say, bring it on to all the challenges. We approach them as scientists say, rather than avoid them, which is a whole nother chat. But that's the most practical thing I could ever share is get clarity on who you are at your best. Do those things, especially when you're at your worst. Then all of a sudden, you've built this scaffolding You'll still have highs and lows, but you won't have the dramatic ups and downs, at least I don't, that I used to have. And in our experience working with a ton of people, um, we've seen the same thing come to fruition. What about rebound days? So let's say you have you have a terrible day. Uh, you try to do the things that you know you're supposed to be doing. The day ends, we go to sleep, a new chapter begins the next day. <laughs> What, what are, what are some of the, you know, I often, you know, say in, in the context of health, so we'll talk about uh, health and zest physiologically in a moment, but, you know, for example, around the holidays, right? So Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever, maybe it's a, you know, it's a bar mitzvah, maybe whatever, whatever it may be. Um, if you fall off the rails, so to speak, if you, uh, eat more than, more cheesecake than you were planning on, or you missed your workout because of travel or for whatever reason, like the next meal is the most important yep. one, right? The, yep. the next, so you miss your workout. The next workout is the most important one. Uh, that's sort of how I talk about, let's say getting, getting back on the bandwagon or rebound. Um, how do you, how do you think about rebound days when we have these days where our emotional stamina has been tested, right? Where we have this, you know, we haven't had the best day for whatever reason. What is the next, what are some of the things that you think about in terms of getting us back so that, that, so that that tangent doesn't widen so that we kind of get back on the course that we were, uh, that we were pursuing? Yeah. The first thing to know is again, common humanity. You got to have the wisdom to know you will never go 30 for 30 in a month. So one of my favorite mental toughness guys talks to world-class athletes and he says, hey, it, when you really figure it out, how many off days would you have in a month, right? And the amateurs say zero. When I really figured out zero, he's like, you don't get it. You're never going to go perfectly 30 for 30. You're just not. You got to expect to have 
four or five bad days. Now, you don't want to have more than that, but you got to know that you're going to have three, four, five, six bad days a month. Full stop. So the main story we're telling ourselves is you shouldn't have had that bad day. Because then what happens is you shame yourself. Then you go off the rails. And then it's a screw it. So I have one bad meal, screw it, whatever. And then I have one bad day, screw it. I'm a loser. I'm never going to figure it out. You don't have the wisdom to know it's supposed to be hard. And then you shame yourself rather than realize, well, wait, wait, wait. I'm supposed to have bad days. No one told me that, but I'm supposed to have bad days. And again, everybody on social media is dancing around and they're all perfect. And I'm the only one that's got my issues. But the great golfer, Jack Nicholas says, knows they're going to have bad shots. It's what differentiates the truly best of all time and the almost. Because the almost guy or girl makes a bad shot and they get all wrapped up about it. The great player says, there's one of them. I'm probably going to make three or four or five other bad shots. Let me play this next shot. Let me focus on the next meal. I have goosebumps again, but getting that is really important because then you go from shame to excitement. And then you look at it and you say, all right, well, where did I fall short? In the book, I tell a story about me doing that with my kids. I got a six-year-old and an 11-year-old. Anybody that's got any kids knows that's the hardest place to practice your philosophy. That tied for first with my relationship with my wife. We've been together 17 years. (laughs) Bring her in. She'll tell you about all my flaws. Let's go, right? But anyway, I yell at my, I, I get upset and I yell at my kids. My son calls me a jerky face. Mm-hmm. I don't even know where first time I mean, a jerky face. Mm-hmm. And then a few minutes later, he wants to do something. I'm like, no, dude, I don't like being called a jerky face. Rest of the day winds up as a circus in the Johnson house. I wake up the next morning and I look at it and I go right back to the moment where I made a bad decision. I didn't close the gap. Now I'm going to rebound in a second, right? And I look at it and go, oh, yeah, yeah. In that moment right there. I didn't ruminate about how I'm a terrible dad. Oh my God, I did it again. I'm going to be just like my dad and all this. I went back there and I said, oh, right there, I could have been cool. And had I been, the night would have been different. Then when he woke up, I repaired with him and said, dude, I'm sorry, I was lame. Had I done this, everything would have gone differently, huh? And he's like, yeah. So now I use that as an opportunity to teach him the thing I wish my kid, my dad taught me. And then after the bad day, we want to double down in our protocol. We want to rebound even stronger. So if you imagine a bouncy ball, one of those hard balls that bounces high, the harder you throw it down, the higher it bounces up. So when you have a down day, use it. Don't waste that data. You learn something meaningful. If you can get rid of the shame, shine a flashlight of curiosity, which is another really powerful virtue, pay attention to what's working, pay attention to what needs work, and then come back to your protocol. Have a checklist of the things you do when you're at your best. Pilots have checklists. You'd never get on a flight with a pilot who didn't have a checklist. Surgeons who have a simple checklist kill 47% less people than surgeons who don't. Do you have a checklist? Do you know the things that you do when you're at your best? That's how you rebound. And again, this is a really important part of anti-fragile confidence to know you're going to have bad days to know what you need to do to get back on track. And and again, to give yourself permission to be human um, while you strive to be heroic as humbly and powerfully as you can. Um, Again, long answer to your great question, but that's that's such a powerful practice. And then again, you stop the downward spiral. You figured out when you least felt like doing the right thing, you did it just a little bit better. There are a few things that are more powerful um, than not feeling like it and getting yourself to do it anyway and realizing, oh wait, that actually felt really good. <laughs> and rather than going down, I created the scaffolding so I'm no longer so up and down. Um, it creates a sense of agency. 
that you have what it takes to um to do all that you feel destined to do in your life, etc. I think any uh, hero or someone who's aspiring to live with Arate, one of the things that um, I've heard from a variety of different uh, teachers it sort of boils down to you have to know who you are, as you said, at your best. And you also have to know your shadow. Like you also have to know the dragons, right? You also have to know the demons that sort of live within and the more familiar that you can get with them. So when you have these bad days, um, one of the things I love that you said, and I just want to double click on that for a moment, is this like, where was the moment, you know, so you had this, uh, you know, interaction with your son, and you said, Oh, right there. That's where I got activated. That's where I got triggered. That's when I regressed, or that's when I, you know, went off the rails, let's say. And then you use that as an opportunity, uh, opportunity for learning. So in the book, you talk about this idea of win or learn. This is something that we talk about at the table with our kids every single night. It's like, where did you learn today? Or wait, well, actually, the word that we use is fail. It's like, where did you fail today? And they'll be like, you know, in the beginning, they're like, nowhere. We never, and I was like, aw, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't fail anywhere. <laughs> Where were you when yeah. I was growing up, Stephanie? <laughs> oh my goodness. But that's sort of reframed failure for them um, insofar as now they're looking for the failure as an opportunity. And I love what you say in the book. You say, you know, win or learn. We don't win or lose. We win or learn. And then learning is winning. So it's actually win or win. So can you talk a little bit about, and just this, this is in the context of, you know, you had this really bad day. The next day you're trying to put the pieces back together. You know, what are some of the, like the psychological frameworks maybe, or the mental frameworks and strategies that we can, that we can sort of learn from the experience. So it's not, as you said, to use your words, it's not wasted, right? That there's actually some, there's some juice in that. There's some, there's some, there's some weight to it. Yeah, that's so such a, another great question. Um, the frame I use in the book often is my son Emerson, who is ten at the time. He's eleven now. He's really into chess. Chess. So I was we go say the chess master. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we go to these chess tournaments, and of course, he doesn't win every game, you know. But we use each, literally every game he's lost. There's been a thing that he did that contributed to him losing the game that we want to learn from. And so what I've done, and what I talk about in the book, is I've literally taught him. So he he loses and I'm like, all right, dude, what do we, what can we learn from this? And then we applied that to the rest of his, you know, tournament and next tournaments. And then he literally won as a direct result of what he learned from those losses. So I've been able to make the connection with him. But again, metaphorically, the way I like to think about it is it's like an archer who goes out to shoot arrows. And the archer Apollo was the patron god of philosophy which means something because Aristotle would say a happy person has targets. They're teleological. They have goals. But an archer doesn't go to the range and expect to hit bullseye every single time. And if they do, they're not trying hard enough. They need to push the target back. So again, the first thing you need to do is have the wisdom to know you're supposed to miss. Again, the story that you're telling yourself, that I'm telling myself, that you should hit every target you set for yourself is arguably the greatest source of your suffering. If you allow yourself to miss the target in every context of your life, then you have the freedom to be non-emotional about it, quit shaming yourself and use it as data to get better. Um, you know, the archer clearly says, well, I, I aimed a little bit too far left. Perfect. Well, I was a little bit too impatient with my son. How do I use that to get better? And then it's data. So you want to be, you know, a growth mindset is what Carol Dweck frames this as, the experimenter's mindset. Imagine if you went through your life with a lab coat on, goggles on, and a clipboard taking notes on what works and what doesn't. And some experiments 
go really wrong. And the, you know, the substances don't mix well together, blows up in your face. Good thing you got goggles on. You're taking notes. Another metaphor is um, a movie. They film hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of film to create a 90-minute movie. No scene is captured in the first take. Very few scenes are captured in the first take, I should say. They, what do they do? If they miss the take and they make a mistake, they just do another take. Literally, not a big deal. So when you have a mistake, you make a mistake, just redo it. Look at it, see what's working, what needs work, and then take another shot at it. And again, giving ourselves the freedom to be imperfect and to use it all as data to get better, um, winning or learning style is so powerful. Um, and uh, again, we need to embody that as we strive to teach our kids that. And I certainly wish I was at your dinner table growing up because I got the exact opposite. From my dad, I was a straight A kid, son of an alcoholic father who needed to be perfect. So I'd get straight A's and I'd get a satisfaction in conduct. I literally remember this like it was yesterday. I'm 10 years old, 40, almost 40 years ago. And all my dad can talk about is that. What happened there? I'm like, all right, dude, sorry, I'm not, I'm not perfect. And I need to be perfect in order to be okay for him and for myself. So that willingness to embrace it. And, and, and final story here, our kids and our family, we have a joke. When we make a mistake, which we do all day, every day, we'll literally say, oh, shoot, I just made a mistake. I was almost the first perfect person and I made a mistake and our kids will just start laughing. Yeah. And then they'll be like, no, you weren't. You make mistakes all the time. I'm like, you're right. I've made 1,272,364 of them. <laughs> how many of you made? Oh, I've made thousands of them. Yeah, me too. Boom. Yeah. That's how you get good. Yeah. You learn, you're willing to make mistakes and get a little bit better. Um, growth mindset, though, and, and this whole idea is, is so important for all the reasons we've discussed and so many more. Yeah. And I, as you were talking about the mistakes, uh, I was thinking about um, Giovanni's a big cinephile. So he uh, was looking at when Mich the latest Mission Impossible movie uh, came out. There's a scene where uh, Tom Cruise. Uh, takes this very expensive bike and basically like runs it off the mountain and then it crashes down. Like he jumps off, you know, cause Tom Cruise is crazy and he does all of his own stunts. And so he jumps off the mountain and then the bike jumps off the mountain as well. And I don't remember the exact cost of the bike. It's, it was a ridiculous amount. It was like $10,000, $15,000, whatever it was for the bike. And they did that take eight times. <laughs> so just think about, you know, the cost just for that, you know, just for that one you know, 15 second scene or whatever it was, you know, it's like mm. they, they racked up like a $90,000, $80,000 bill just because they were like, okay, let's just do it one more time. Let's just make sure that we got it. We make sure that we got it perfect or we make sure that we got it the way that we want it. Um, yep. so and it was I in the budget, you know, it was yeah. expected. And it was this again, the, the wise among us know that, yeah, yeah, yeah. let me expect that. Use yeah. it, get better. That's yeah. awesome. Good, 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 good. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, this idea of lead measures versus lag measures. This is sort of coming on the tail of our conversation around, you know, having good bad days. So we have like a bad day, but we're going to make it a good bad day because we're going to, as you as you mentioned, we're going to, you know, sort of have this post mortem. We're going to say, okay, what went well, what didn't go so well, how can I improve in the future? Can you talk a little bit about? What are some of the different data points um, that we might be thinking about observing over time? And in the book, you talk about lead measures versus lag measures. Can you dif differentiate that for, for the listener for me? Yeah. So this is, um, it's an idea from the Four Disciplines of Execution, which is a great book on kind of management that you can apply to your life. 
Um, there are four disciplines. The first is you got to have a wildly important goal. So we need to know what we want in life. Again, if you don't know what you want in life and you're not excited to get out of bed in the morning, it's going to be tough. You're, you're just, it's going to be tough. So you got to have that hope. You got to have that vision of what you really want. Um, then you want to define it and know what success would look like, but you've got to know that that outcome, let's say we just, we want to have, you know, optimal energy. We want to wake up feeling great in the morning. We want to weigh a certain amount. We want to waste to height ratio, whatever it is that we want in our energy or our work or our love. That's your lag measure. It's the outcome that you want, but that result lags behind your lead measure. So another phrase that people use is process versus outcome. So if I'm a golfer, I want to win the tournament. I want to shoot under par. That's my lag measure. I don't have direct control over that. What I need to focus on is my, and if I want to be happy, that's a lag measure, right? If you just go after happiness, but you don't pay attention to what creates happiness, you won't be very happy. So then the the lead measure that will lead to the lag outcome goal are things like meditation, gratitude, cultivating hope, getting a good night of sleep, eating a certain style, making your next meal a good one after you went off the rails on a bad one, practicing your philosophy consistently. Um, the golfer would have two scorecards. They'd have one that would be the outcome thing that everybody else looks at. But the thing their coach is looking at with them is, did you work your protocol? Did you take a breath before you stepped up to each shot? Did you do this, this, and this? Because if you do that consistently, you're likely to get the thing that you want. So we want to have a checklist, a protocol, a list of things we do when we're at our best. And we will have highs and lows. We won't always shoot a good round of golf. We won't always be happy at the end of the day. All right, cool. I understand you're facing some stresses. How's your, how are your fundamentals? Are you doing the things that you know you could be doing to show up powerfully? That's what I care about. And then not that I don't care that they're having a rough patch. We all have rough patches. What I care about is what are you doing when you're going through that? Because I can assure you, you're going to have a better shot of achieving the things you want in life if you continue to focus on the lead measures that lead to the outcomes you want in life. That's the process versus outcome. Um, it's a really exciting thing that, that connects to everything else we've talked about. But again, most people are seduced by all the extrin wrong extrinsic stuff, and they forget the important game and the little things they can do all day, every day to win. And this is where science comes in again. Happiness does not come from the big extrinsic things in life. It comes from celebrating the little things, not taking them for granted and in the moment saying, that's amazing. So this morning, I'm on my little trampoline or huge trampoline, actually noxiously big. We didn't realize it was that big in the backyard. And I, I'm with the kids and I'm going to do like a minute or two. I'm busy, right? And they're like, no, come on, let's play monkey in the middle, whatever, some more. I'm like, all right, let me get my heart rate monitor. I'm going to make this my workout. So I'm spending 10, 15 minutes there. I'm celebrating that. And I'm saying to myself, that's like me, to show up and strive to be the man and the husband and the father I want to be. And I'm appreciating the fact that I'm winning right now. I just closed the gap and I'm doing the right thing for my kids within the constraints of my really busy reality right now. That would be a lead measure that will lead to me experiencing the gains that I want to see in my life, happiness, connection to my kids, et cetera. Again, long answer to your great question, but that's a quick no, it's take beautiful. It's beautiful. You know, on yeah. the uh, lead and lag. I love it. I talk about it in the context of behavior versus outcome. So in the, you know, mm -hmm. the equivalent would be like the lag would be the outcome. It's like, 
I want to lose 10 pounds. That's the, that's the North star. That's the lag. But then what are the behaviors that you're doing that are leading to use your, you know, terms? What are the things that you're doing every day? Are you getting, are you getting seven hours or eight hours of sleep? Are you getting early morning sunshine? Do you have an appointment at the gym? Are you doing whatever cardiovascular or cardiorespiratory, uh, you know, fitness? And then you're also doing resistance training. Are we tracking macros or calories or, you know, whatever it is, those are all the behaviors that are going to lead to the outcome. So these are all the lead measures, right? That are going to lead to the lag, which is the, it's the last thing to happen. You know, that's why I think it's called the lag. It's like after all the lead uh, measures have been implemented, that's the last thing to happen. You don't just wake up and say, I'm going to lose 10 pounds today. And then you're, you get there by four, you know, like by 4 p.m. It's like, there's a lot of things that have to happen (laughs) consistently over a certain delta that's going to help you sort of reach or actualize um, that lag goal, which I think is so important. And even, you know, for any, we have a lot of clinicians that listen to the show as well. If you have a patient that comes in and says, hey, doc, guess what? I've lost five pounds. Don't emphasize the lag. Don't emphasize, oh, great, you lost five pounds. Like, you know what? walking every day and getting those seven hours of sleep and getting to the gym three times a week really seems to be working well for you. Like you mentioned it with the coach, you know, when the, when the, when the golfer's having the off day, they're saying, Hey, where's the process? Are they, are they getting back to those fundamentals? Are they getting, are they doing the behavioral outcomes that they, that they said that they were going to do? Are we coming back to those sort of fundamental basics? Um, which I think is so powerful. Um, Okay, let's talk a little bit about zest and energy. This is, um, you know, you talk about uh, in the uh, in the book, you talk about optimizing the big three: energy, work, and love. Uh, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the first one. Let's talk about energy. How do we? Uh, you talk about mitochondria. You do, you talk about some science in the book as well. What are some of the fundamentals in your mind? You've mentioned a couple of them already, but maybe we can sort of expand on them in terms of cultivating energy in light that. As we age, as a natural consequence of aging, you know, our ener- our capacity for energy also changes. So again, back to that sort of idea yeah. of like, we know that it's going to change. So instead of misinterpreting yeah. our experience when it comes here, how can we be strategic now so that when those things happen, we're ready for them? Again, the first thing with everything is to realize how important it is. So again, it's an obvious thing to say out loud. It's kind of common sense. Well, yeah, yeah I'm going to feel better if I'm energized. Um, but you really want to get that. And then the science is unequivocal. Like this is the virtue most highly correlated with your flourishing. And again, it is, it's really important to recognize that our physiology drives more of our psychology than we think. So your gut is producing more serotonin than your brain. It's a fascinating thing, but not too many doctors are telling us that. 80 to 85, 90% of your serotonin comes from your gut. The overconsumption of sugar, refined foods, processed foods isn't helping your psychological well-being, nor is it helping your kids' psychological well-being, et cetera. So again, simply making that connection is really powerful. And then stepping back and saying, all right, well, what are our core fundamentals? We can have a lot of them, but eating, moving, and sleeping, are if we get those right, we're doing pretty darn well. So again, we start with the why. Then psychologically, if we want to change our behaviors, Michelle Seeger is one of the researchers I come back to a lot in the book. Out of University of Michigan, she talks about why some people change their behaviors and others don't. Mm. One of the key distinctions is you've got to have the right why. And the right why is not abstract, it's concrete. It can't be losing weight um, or even losing X pounds. It's I want to feel great now. And then you want to make the connection between the things that you're doing and how you're feeling in an hour or 10 hours or a day or whatever. 
then very importantly, you make the behaviors you're engaging in a gift you give to your future self, not a chore you're doing. If you're going through this stuff, you're like, oh, I have to do this. I got to go out and do this. And I got, then I got to do this. And it's a pain in the butt. And God, it's overwhelming and it's terrible. Well, no one's going to keep on doing, doing that. What we teach our kids again is make the connection. My kids don't like getting sick. Neither one of them has ever taken an antibiotic, which has been a blessing, you know, but they don't like getting sick. So when they get a little sick, which they just did, by the way, uh, we make the connection. Oh, we went out and we splurged at a restaurant. They had a lot of food they don't usually have. Oh, let's make the connection. Life happens, but make the connection. And they like feeling great. And they know the things they do that help them feel great. Then we want to give ourselves the gift of higher energy. And then things like eating a certain way, moving our bodies a certain way, getting a good night of sleep are not chores. We're begrudgingly checking off a list that someone else imposed on us. They're gifts we're generously giving to our future self. So again, we can talk you know, nuance and details. But for me, sleep is my number one. So I used to be super up and down. I had none of the stuff we're talking about now, protocol-wise. That's my number one target that I hit in our heroic app, which is architected to do everything we just discussed. Early morning sun is one of my targets. Uh, you know, all these things that we know we could be doing, we want to do consistently. And the way we challenge it is people is, all right, on that list of do's, what's the number one thing you know you could be doing that would most positively benefit your life? And then know that the fastest way to change your life actually isn't starting to do something, it's stopping a certain behavior. What's the kryptonite that's derailing your life that we just need to delete from your life? Um, and then systematically architect your life such that the things you did when you're at your best become your new baseline. Quit giving up the gains you had. If when you get a good night of sleep, you meditate, I meditate every morning for at least 11 minutes, and I do a certain training thing I personally love, that includes burpees and pull-ups and rowing. Very simple, but I do it every day. Then we find that we have more energy, more vitality than we ever thought was possible. Um, and uh, everything takes on new meaning and all the other things that we could discuss. But eating, moving, sleeping, each of which we could talk about for a weekend um, are the things that we focus on in my work. That's great. And I, you know, I, I, I'm always, whenever I'm talking to, whether it's someone in my community or patients or, or what have you, so many individuals will say, you know, I went on vacation and I ate more food, but we walked a lot and I slept in and I lost weight. You know, it, it'll be like, a, it's this, I, this crazy thing I had. I went to Italy and all I had was gelato and pasta and I came back, you know, five, five pounds lighter. And part of that is they're sleeping better. They're managing their stress better. They're getting more natural sunlight. And, you know, maybe there has to be, there's something to be said about the food processing and the GMOs in, you know, in North America versus, you know, Italy is very, very protective of its food, you know, uh, her and heritage wise, we're very happy that they, that they do that to sort of preserve the heritage of, of Italian cuisine. Um, but to your point, I think that when you can start, you know, it, it, it's the stopping of the things, you know, I think so many of us well, you know, when they, when we go on vacation, we're not regularly checking our phone as often because we're, you know, on a different foreign plan or, you know, whatever it is, right? We're not, you know, Gio will call it plugged into the matrix. Like we're not plugged into the matrix of like, what's so-and-so doing on Insta? What, what new stuff is coming up in my email? What did someone say mm -hmm. on Twitter or whatever it's called now? X, what, what, you know, it's X now. So what, uh -huh. what is someone saying on X? What video, you know, should I be exposing myself to? And when we unplug from that, 
get back into the simple things, just like nature. One, one of my friends, he sits, he wakes up every morning and just sits and watches. There's a tree on his property. He has a chair in front of the tree and sits and watches the tree. And he does wow. that for, you know, he does that for however long, you know, uh, I'm sure it varies from, you know, from day to day, but it's part of his ritual in the, in the same way that you said every day, I meditate for 11 minutes and do my burpees, I do my, you know, push-ups or whatever. Um, but there's, there's a ritualistic nature to it. And then you can expand or contract based on, you know, the constraints that you might have in your life that day, that week, that month. Um, but there's something that always happens. And actually, speaking of my friend, uh, his name is Paul. He'd asked me a question, which I'll, I'll ask you because I think I think you might really like this. He was he was describing the scenario where he was late for uh, something with work, and he knew that he was going to be late uh, because he had slept in. And he said, "You know, uh, I still made sure that I got my work. Like I didn't cut my workout. I didn't cut my time with the kids and like school drop off and whatever." So I knew that I was going to be late and, you know, I could have gotten there on time if I had cut out my workout, cut out time with my wife in the morning, cut out time with my kids. And he's like, I thought that was like a really great question to ask. Like, if you knew you were going to be late, what, like, what would you negotiate? Would, would there be something that you would negotiate? And so I'll throw that question out um, to you. If you, same kind of question to you, if you knew that you were going to be late somewhere, do you think that there would be anything that would change about your routine. It might be the length of time that you that you might do your burpees and pull-ups, but would there be anything that you would compromise on or are these really your non-negotiables? I and you you referenced uh, kind of how I approach it in how you described it which is um I think we need to have variability we need to reduce the variability of our behavior if we want to install habits to the degree we can. So I meditate every morning after I get up. I don't need to wonder when I'm going to meditate. That's just when I meditate, you know, with asterisks of except when I don't. But that's an important thing for behavioral change. Your basal ganglia makes you do the things you do. You got to be consistent. But what I've found is I have different protocols for different constraints. So when I'm visiting you in Toronto and I had a really busy week that completely disrupted what I normally do, then I have this, this really contracted version of what I would do when I'm in bubble wrap at home and I can spend you know two hours in the morning doing the perfect protocol. Well, I got a 20 minute version of it. You know, it's a minute, three minutes of, of meditation. I've got a, literally before we connected, I'm out, I'm on our trail and I did a seven minute workout. Well, I prefer to work out for at least 30 minutes, but boom, I know how to go out and get, um, you know, a quick workout in. So we want to be able to kind of flex what we do. Um, but then there are certain things that are non-negotiable for me. So I compromise sleep for the movie premiere. I'm never up until 11.30. That's late for me, right? Again, I'm, me too, I'm great. Brian. I, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's great. But you yeah. do it with a smile. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, You know what your bright lines are, and you know yeah. when you're going over them, and you, you, you enjoy it. And then I got up early because I needed to go to the airport, so I didn't get my eight to nine hours in bed so I can get my seven to eight hours of sleep. And I smiled when I missed it because I made a decision to do something that was amazing. It was a it was an incredible experience to be with you in your community and watch the film. Perfect. I'm not shaming myself. I'm getting back on it when I get home. Um, so there needs to be a flexibility to how we show up in our lives. Dan Siegel, a dear friend, one of my favorite teachers, Harvard MD, neuroscientist, mindfulness expert. He says a healthy human being is flexible, psychologically flexible, the same way that a river flows between two banks, a healthy person is flexible and they flow between the banks of spontaneity and structure. 
So you want to have an appropriate amount of structure and an appropriate amount of spontaneity. If you flood spontaneity, you get into chaos, too little structure. If you flood structure, you get into rigidity. So Aristotle called it a virtuous mean. Too much of a good thing is not a good thing. Too little of a good thing is not a good thing. You want to find your flexible, dynamic, virtuous mean. Um, And I think this is related to what you asked, which is, all right, cool, flex. Have some structure, but be willing to be spontaneous. Have some spontaneity, but keep your structure. And then you got to notice where you go. I tend to flood structure. I tend to get rigid. And I'll break if I can't do exactly what I say I want to do. I'm a hyper-disciplined dude that sometimes needs to remember life needs to happen. Break your your protocol to go to a movie premiere, dude. We're good. Be with the kids. We're good. Others may not have enough structure. They may be too spontaneous, and and that may be creating chaos in their lives. So we need to find that dynamic, um, beautiful flexibility um, in our own idiosyncratic lives, knowing that we've got different constraints. My wives are very different than mine. You know, she leads the the parenting and her, you know, um, structure is very different than my structure. Um, and we got to find that dance in our lives and with our partners and, and um, all that good stuff. But that's how I try to approach it um, more or less successfully, <laughs> depending on the day. But again, we got a compass, you know, that's guiding us and we're doing our best. Yeah, the the night of the movie premiere, I think I ended up getting to bed at eleven thirty, which is about three and a half hours past when I normally. You and I both. All right, cool. That's great. But and you know, but this is the thing. Like, I feel like I add to my. You know, if there's a health bank account, I make a deposit there every single day. And there's times when I'm going to make a withdrawal and there's no, you know, there's so much pleasure in life. You know, I tend to, I'm, I'm like you, I tend to like, actually, that's one of my top values. When I did that test, it was like, you know, discipline. That was my number one yeah. um, virtue. And I think that there's, there's so much to be missed in terms of pleasure and connection uh, when we don't take the opportunity to withdraw from the, from the health bank account that I'm, that I'm describing. Um and in the book, you, I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about this idea of being a perfectionist, which I totally identify with, uh, and being an optimalist, because you make a really nice distinction here. And, you know, in the, you know, sort of spirit of truth and, and honesty and transparency, I'm not an optimalist yet, uh, <laughs> but I am moving towards it. I'm sort of a recovering perfectionist because I do really like my structure. Like I will give up travel I will say no to travel because I know that time zone changes and all of that and like time away from my kids and, and all of that is, is, is very disruptive for me and I don't like it. Um, but let's talk a little bit about how we can move and for the other closet perfectionists that are, that are listening, how we might think about moving from being so rigid, uh, and, you know, maybe even erring on the side of, you know, when you're so perfectionistic to be almost like a saboteur to being more of an optimalist and having that flexibility of thought and mind that you've been describing. Yeah, that's great. This is a a brilliant distinction from Tal Ben-Jahar, um, another friend of mine who taught the largest class in Harvard's history, um, leading positive psychologists, um, wrote a whole book on it. And I have a class called Conquering Perfectionism 101 because I, like you, continue to uh, wage that battle. But the idea is that there's actually two forms of perfectionism, a healthy expression and an unhealthy expression. So in the science, in the scientific literature. So both perfectionists have high standards, right? But the unhealthy perfectionist 
actually thinks they're going to hit those standards all the time. It's very much like we've been talking about. Mm. So anytime they fall short of those standards, they shame themselves and then they spiral out. That's where eating disorders, you know, anxiety, all the things you don't want come up. But it doesn't mean you get rid of your high standards. It means you embrace the constraints of your reality. And you know that you will never hit those targets perfectly. So Tall was a literally world, he was an Israeli champion squash player, right? And he wanted to be a a world-class athlete, a husband and father, and a world-class professor and consultant and advisor and all these things. There's 24 hours in the day. He can't train like a world-class athlete anymore and be a great parent and husband and be the professional he wants to be. So he had to embrace the constraints of his reality, which is what unhealthy perfectionists don't do. So he comes up with a new name for it. There's perfectionism, then there's being an optimalist. The word optimal doesn't mean perfect. It's another ancient word that means the best, the best within the constraints of your reality. So again, my reality as a father of two is very different than it was before kids. My joke with Alexander is there are kids, there are people that have kids and people that don't have kids. They're very different types of people, but only the group that has kids knows there's two different groups of people, (laughs) right? Cats, cats don't count, folks. I don't care how many of them you have. My life's very different. The constraints of my reality are completely different now. Now, if I continue to argue with that, I'm going to suffer more. But anyway, that's the fundamental difference between the two. The healthy perfectionist slash optimalist does the best within their constraints of their reality. So things like a five-minute workout, a seven-minute workout, a three-minute meditation, or whatever it is, becomes perfect in that environment. And we celebrate the fact that we're winning, um, and we get back to work, and we do our best. But that's been the distinction. The other great point that he makes, uh, citing Carl Jung, is he says that your your goals for yourself are guiding stars. They're not distant shores. You're never going to get there, ever. You're never going to be the person you really, really want to be. And that's a humbling, sobering thing. My coach, Phil says, Stott says, you're never going to be exonerated from pain, uncertainty, and hard work, which are the poo, P-U-H, pain, oh, uncertainty, hard work. Right, but right. but your ideals, right. your ideals are guiding stars. They're not distant shores. You will never get there. There's no there there. Just show up, enjoy this moment, have gratitude for the opportunity to practice your philosophy, however imperfectly, and celebrate life more. Um, that's the idea that um, a couple of the ideas that have been really transformative for me as a still recovering perfectionist. Mm-hmm. That's brought a lot more joy to my life. You know, less joyless urgency and more. Mm-hmm joyful, fierce commitment, you know, but like, um, remembering we're winning, you know, we're winning for being this deep into this conversation right now and to have the lives we have and the opportunity to continue to, to try our best, you know, but I, I love that distinction. It's one of my favorite and it's been one of the most transformative for me to truly practice that. Yeah. And I, I think too, I, I can speak just for myself. I don't know if this resonates um, with you, but I also think, and you've demonstrated it several times in this conversation, just having some, you know, the humility and the humor. It's like, we're on a rock that's spinning, moving through space. The next, you know, star is, I don't know how many billions of light years away. It's, it's, it's goosebumps. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, it's just, it's just having some humor and some humility around how silly are, how, we can just get wrapped up in some of these ideas. 
uh, and and really be um, paralyzed by them. So you've you you know you said something with your kids, or you mentioned that you said, "Look, I'm the I'm the perfect person," you know, and and, and your kids like, "No, you're not. You've made four million three hundred thousand. You know, <laughs> I, I think that that kind of humor. Um, at least it, it served me very well. It's like, who do you think you are, Estima? Like, just, you know, it's it's like, I almost feel like I'm not part of the human race. Like, I should be able to do everything perfectly right from the beginning. And it's like, who the hell told you that? Yeah. Like, where was that in your story, you silly little yeah. goose? Yeah. 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 Well, let's very briefly, I go out every morning on the back porch, you know, and I quickly look up to the moon. And I see if, if the moon's out and I can see the light, I think, all right, it takes a second for the sun's light to bounce off of the moon. Mm. The moon is 238,000 miles away. Wow. And then I think of the sun, which is 93 million miles away. It takes eight minutes and 20 something seconds for the sun's light to reach us. And then I think, and this is all in a split second. I go moon 238. And then I go sun 93 million miles. And then the next closest star is four light years away which is over a quadrillion miles away. Un my, my brain explodes at that point. And then I think there are a billion stars, each of which are at least that far apart from one another. And then I come back to my reality. It takes me three seconds. But it's this really grounding, humble, it's all a miracle. How is it possible that I'm here right now? The odds of me being alive are insane. You know, <laughs> like, let me settle down a little bit and just allow life to be in that issue I'm facing right now is important. And I'm not going to diminish the challenges we all face, but sure. I do that literally multiple times a day of just boom, bring it back. All right. I got some perspective. Let me see if I can handle my little, <laughs> my little, uh, life challenge right now, um, and laugh about it and myself a lot more, you know? Yeah. My son is very much into astronomy right now. And he was saying to me the other day, he's like, you know, some of the stars in the sky, the light that you're seeing, they don't even exist anymore. Like they're gone. But like the light uh, that we're seeing is light from like hundreds of thousands of years. I was like, what? You know, like to your point, it's like my brain can't even understand that. I can't even understand the vastness. Um, therein. Okay. So as we're, I'm just looking at the time, I want to make sure, um, I wanted to make sure to ask you this. So let's just pr pretend that we are optimalists. It's the perfect conditions. What does your masterpiece day look like? Um, great, great frame. <laughs> and let's playfully acknowledge that never exists. <laughs> but, but the way that I think of, of masterpiece days that I think is another really important um, distinction we make in all of our work is today started last night. And this is an obvious thing, but I like to say your PM counts twice. How you end your day affects not just that day, but the next day. So I'm all about my shutdown, complete rituals. So I end my day. I, one of my work habits on my checklist in the app is when I end my day. So when I start my day, I know when I'm going to end it. I don't let it flood into, it's not the last thing I do at night. I'm ending my day, you know, an hour, two before I want to go to bed technology-wise, particularly business-wise, et cetera. And then I'm using that to transition to recover my energy by shutting off my work and I connect with my family. So it's like a, a, a triple win, right? So my night started, today started the night before. Um, last night, I got an amazing night of sleep, catching up for some sleep that I had lost. But literally, I'm in bed last night at 7.50, you know, which now is an hour after the sun went down or more. It will go even earlier when the time changes, but we put the kids to bed, we go to bed 
I was in bed for 10 hours last night. I got eight hours and 55 minutes of sleep or something. Awesome, crazy, needed it. Okay, cool. Woke up, you know, six o'clock or so. And then I'm meditating and I went deeper today, but I'm journaling and I'm reflecting while in a meditative state is when I do my creative thinking. So I try to get my resting heart rate down and I measure it every morning. And I literally take a picture of it and put it up on our social platform um, as part of my protocol to tap into my intuition. So Stephen Kotler and I had a chat like this, and he's writing a book on the neurobiology of intuition. Short story is you got to turn your prefrontal cortex off and connect to something bigger than yourself. One way to do that is through slowing down your breath rate, um, bringing your entire system down, and then things come to me. So every morning I'm doing that and reflecting on our vision for the business and who I want to be. And then I'll do whatever I decided is most important. So I'm creative before reactive. I never turn on my phone for email and stuff like that until I have done whatever I decided is the most important thing. This morning, it was like a five-minute email that I drafted offline on my phone in like text mode. Right. But that was what I needed to do, frankly, that I forgot to do yesterday. And I'm like, oh, okay, I got to do that today. Um, And then I'm busy these days, you know, but then it it went into night before, good night of sleep, meditation, creative before reactive and deep work, checking in with the family. Um, And this morning it was awesome, jumping on the trampoline as we discussed. And then I'm in. And now it's, you know, I'm leading a team and we're launching the book and we're doing some other things. Um, And now here I am with you early in the morning. But that's that's a masterpiece day for me so far. But it's it's frankly unlike a lot of other days. It's got components to it that I kind of mix and match with different minutes um, and focal points. Um, and I'll oscillate. It's very important to me. You know, I'll probably work out three, four times just for like five, six, seven minutes each today because my calendar is just packed and I won't have time for a long workout. But I'll go out and, and hit it for five, six, seven minutes. Um, Little movements now. And then I'll shut down. Movement snacks, yeah, yeah, opportunities to move, opportunities to train or work out, um, yeah. which is a whole other chat. But that's that's some of the elements that come in energy, work, and love wise. Beautiful. All right, talk to us about the book. So I am uh, really just blessed to have an advanced copy of it, but this is not out yet. It will be out, and we're going to be releasing this um, podcast to coincide with the release of the book. So tell people about when the book comes out, and then you've mentioned the Heroic app, which I have on my phone, and admittedly, I haven't been in it yet. Um, I am planning on diving deep into it as I continue reading the book and, and applying some of the principles. But tell us all the places where uh, people can find you and your work, um, the book, the app, all the places, the podcast. Oh, bless you. So then, yeah, the book, Arate, love seeing it on your desk, um, comes out November 14th. We're really excited about that. You can buy that Amazon wherever you buy your books. 451 ideas like we discussed of the absolute best ideas that I've studied over the last now, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, short form little micro chapters, hopefully any one of which can help you activate your heroic potential. Um, and then the heroic app is where we help people move from theory to practice to mastery. So we help people get clarity on their protocol. Um, what do you do when you're at your best? And um, we help them I- establish identities and the virtues they embody and the specific behaviors that they hit. Um, we worked with a company in Canada, in fact, called MetaLab um, to build the app. Uh, they built Slack, Tinder, Uber Eats, Elon Musk's Neuralink. So it's a social training platform with guides. Really excited to connect with you more and talk about how your community can connect with you 
on the Heroic app. That's the vision for our platform. Oh, that's if you cool. see the social dilemma, have you seen yeah. the social dilemma? I have, yes. It frightened me to my core. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I'm a technologist. I had built yeah. and sold two social platforms. I watched it horrified. Yeah. I built a platform that had 250,000 people on it before Facebook that John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods, invested in that was based on using social technology to change the world. I sold it to a publicly traded company and it died a sad death, unfortunately, 17 years ago. So I waited for 17 years for someone to create an answer to the social dilemma, a healthy social platform with none of the toxicity, none of the attention economics that's built exclusively to help people show up as their best selves to change the world. So our vision is to connect your community to you and to one another because a hero gets a guide. So you are the guide for your community and then they get buddies. Harry Potter got Hermione and Ron and they got Dumbledore, right? But then the heroes became the guide. In every hero story, the hero becomes the guide. So our vision is to create the platform and it's what we have now that I can't wait to share with you and Gio with the launch, et cetera, where we're connecting around these ideas and supporting one another online and offline to be our best selves so we can literally fundamentally change the world. I'm unapologetic in my ambition to help create a world in which 51% of humanity is flourishing by 2051. And it happens with conversations like this, connecting with one another, supporting one another in being our best selves, because you and I are blessed. We have one another in our, our wonderful friends that um, I had dinner with Gio and I broke all my rules. I'm like, wow, this is a beautiful restaurant. Usually I eat my last meal four hours before, not tonight. That was fun. Right. Yeah. But a lot of people in our community, and I imagine yours, feel alone. Yeah. They're the only ones talking about these ideas, yeah. but you're not alone. There are so many of us, and I know you have so many people that are part of your community. What if we can connect outside of the toxicity of a Facebook or a TikTok or Instagram or whatever, completely focused on these ideals, surrounded by people who believe in the same ideas? And science says that's the fastest way to change your life. Join a community of people with high standards. And so that's the heroic social training platform. And I can't wait to literally one-on-one talk to you more about that um, because we want it to be the preferred social platform for everyone who believes in these ideas. And that's what we've been working hard um, to create and to be worthy of. And that's the, um, the vision for what we're up to with heroic. That is excellent. And I am all in for that. Yes. So let's continue oh. that conversation oh. 100%. Brian, this has just been... I feel like we've scratched the surface, but this has been such a robust and meaty discussion. Thank you so much for your time, your focus, your energy, obviously the work and the, you know, the miles that you run in on this. Like it's very clear that you are, you've put in the miles, you are an expert on a, so a vast array of topics in terms of mastery. And um, yeah, to, to, to our next conversation, I'm looking forward to it. To our next conversation, Stephanie, bless you. Gio, as you know, we're bromancing out. Now, when do we, few seconds into our chat, Ben, Ben Pikulski introduced us, of course, and he raved yeah. about him. Yeah. I'm like, wow, soul brother. This is one of my all-time favorite conversations. I appreciate you, your presence, the important work you're doing. And it's been an honor to um, share some of my ideas with you and uh, just feel blessed. So I'm super excited to continue our conversations and do everything we can to uh, make a profound difference together. Awesome. 
All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I'm a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.